From WPVM LP in Asheville, you found the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Katherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons, and this is Mauve and Picks. Won't find it If you won't leave the house Combined with An awkward sense of self Don't matter what they say Change will come garbage pizza place Domino's really I'm sorry really yeah huh. I've tried them all I've tried them all back in the day I uh it used to be Papa John's but I think solely because of its near proximity to my blockbuster yeah I mean Papa John's was always too sweet for me yeah it's, I'm a I'm a little Sugary Caesars sauce. person I'm a little Caesars person oh Oh, actually, it's, never mind. I want to officially change my answer to Little, little Caesars. Yeah? Yes. Okay. Okay. I'll accept that. Because, yeah. yeah, Domino's is garbage. 
Domino's, <laughs> Domino's was uh, was there for me during my freshman year of college. It's it's the six dollar um, whatever those like hot and ready or whatever they are pizzas that I'm I just I'm like it's six bucks. It's cheaper mm-hmm. than a it's cheaper than a in a heat at home pizza. You know it's it's yeah I and can. delicious every time. And it's the next day when the cheese is like solidified. Like that's my favorite cold pizza. That's where mm-hmm. I really judge. A crappy takeout pizza from is like it's it's temperature. I need it to be like or like if it's if it's good cold, it's gonna be it's gonna be good hot. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, they all just taste like salt anyway. <laughs> yeah, pizza is it's a comfort food. It's a remedy. It it cures homesickness and loneliness and hangoverness. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a sign that you don't have to do any work. Mm-hmm. After you've already done your work for the day, you don't have to come home and cook something. You just take something that is decadent and a little unhealthy and you just know you're going to have to deal with a little heartburn later and it's fine. Absolutely worth it. Yeah. So when writer and comedian Luke Brennan moved to Chicago, his already prevalent penchant for pizza solidified itself even more. Here's his story, Pizza Odyssey. In the beginning, it was Tiger King and the phrase, it can't be later than July. Then for a while, there were Zoom happy hours. Springtime was when I started leaning on a strict walking schedule. I remember watching the flowers perk up along the sidewalk, either oblivious or ambivalent to the growing threat of coronavirus. In order to remain sane throughout the pandemic, I sought out a variety of support structures. Many rituals came and went, but one comfort remained a constant. Pizza. In October of 2019, I moved to Chicago, city of pizza, to start a job as a technology consultant. The city was chilly in October and breezy. Downtown was busy. Conversation could be completely obliterated by the elevated train roaring on tracks above. I liked Chicago. Its neighborhoods were quaint or cute or hip, riddled with coffee shops, donut stops, and pubs. My first pizza in the professional working world was a Detroit-style cheese square from Jets, which felt a bit promiscuous with the famous Lou Malnati's just around the corner. My boss bought the pizzas for our team as we plugged away at a chunk of software that was due to our client the next morning. The pizza squares from Jets were saturated with grease, almost dripping, and our keyboards were soon covered in an oily sheen. Another slice, another edit, another ill-shaped chunk of data. The next memorable pizza pie came two months later in December. It was a delicious pot pie pizza from Chicago Pizza and Oven Grinder Company where your only choice was to get the half pound or the full one pound pizza. I'd never seen a pot pie pizza before. They arrived upside down and inside out. All the gooey good stuff sat in the middle of the pizza ball and it puffed with steam when you poked a fork through it. The restaurant itself was underground, dark wooden booths and amber lamps. I went there on a date and we ate, drank beer, and talked about whether or not we thought married people were crazy for being married. Pizza was not on my mind when the pandemic rolled around in March, but maybe it should have been. It certainly was on my mind when my pizza, ordered as a crucial component for a self-care movie night, never arrived. I ordered the pizza through Grubhub and checked my phone repeatedly throughout the movie. During the exposition, before the climax, during the climax, and afterwards as the credits rolled. The progress of my pizza never moved from processing order to en route. The next morning, Grubhub reimbursed me the $24 when I found out that the pizza shop was out of business. Slightly traumatized, I decided from that point on to take a break from ordering food through apps. 
So I turned to something I eyed warily, the grocery store pizza. Aldi. It was the first place where I felt stressed about the pandemic, in a physical way, in a it's-really-hard-to-breathe kind of way. I was tempted to count my breaths or try to keep them as limited as possible or to time my visit. I wanted to do anything I could to minimize the amount of time I spent inside Aldi. It was my biggest exposure to other people, and it felt insane given the other precautions that we were taking to avoid exposure. Each breath felt suicidal, murderous, both. The elderly lady who decisively punctured my six-foot bubble in order to reach for the cherry tomatoes was a goner. I practically breathed on her as she passed by, and holy moly, was that her nose peeking out of her mask? It was during this time that I connected with Mama Cozy's Pizza Kitchen Take and Bake Deli Pizza. For a mere $6 and a full 16 inches, this supreme and refrigerated pizza became a weekly ritual. It started as an impulse buy. Ah, what the heck. The kind of thing that you say to your kid when they ask if they can have Pop-Tarts for breakfast when you're at the beach. Mama Cozy's Pizza Kitchen Take and Bake Deli Pizza found itself inside my shopping cart. The brown box lined precariously, and with a sense of superiority, over my bell peppers, spinach, and hummus. For a store-bought refrigerated pizza, Mama Cozy's was actually really good, by which I mean amazing. On Friday nights, I prayerfully prepared my meal. Oven at 375, pizza in the oven, done. In less than half an hour, Mama Cozy's cheesy pizza was steaming on my plate. The cheese was decadent, greasy as jets. The crust supple and not even distantly related to cardboard. Not to mention the toppings. Mushrooms, peppers, pepperoni, sausage, leafy greens. This pizza had it all. In fact, this pizza was so good that one day as I was walking home with my groceries, a man across the street did a double take as he saw the hefty 16-inch box in my hands. Hey, he said, eyes on my pizza box. That's a really good pizza. I'd met another disciple. The next September, I moved away from Chicago and away from the comfort of Mama Cozy's. I moved to Seattle, which had its own Aldi equivalent grocery outlet bargain market. Gross out, or Groutlet for short. On my first trip to Gross Out, I anxiously searched the frozen pizza section. My heart sank as I looked into the freezer box. No Mama Cozy's. There was no pizza as big, or as cheap, or as supreme. I settled on a DiGiorno pizza, just pepperoni, and assured myself that I could add peppers and onions and whatever else I liked when I got home. $5 and 12 inches, by no means steel. I made the pizza that night, and when I ate my first slice, I began to reflect on the choices that had brought me to this point. I left Chicago on a leave of absence from my consulting job. I wanted to move out west to mix things up, be closer to the mountains, and to try writing a book, something that I'd attempted when I was 10 and then gave up on. Eating that DiGiorno pizza, I wondered vaguely what the heck I was doing with my life. I did some thinking, ate a slice, scratched my head. Grocery Outlet was a godsend, despite the lack of affordable and delicious pies. Often you saved as much as you spent at Growlit, according to Growlit. Its big downside was that it sometimes didn't have the food you were looking for, and when the week came where they were out of chickpeas, I decided on principle that I could no longer shop there. I moved on to Trader Joe's, and while their staff was cheery, their pizzas were about the same price and size as Groutlet, which made me sad. My roommate suggested a build-your-own pizza. A relatively cheap option, it was $2 for the dough, and the sky was the limit from there. They were fun to make. We kneaded our dough, prepped some veggies, conspired about adding a sunny-side-up egg on top, and made our own sauce. 
Our first slices we ate in silence. After that first bite, we nodded to each other and enjoyed the pizzas for what they were. Mind-blowingly amazing. I thought warmly about Chicago and the fabulous on-demand pizzas that came from Jets and the Chicago Pizza Company. Mama Cozy's came to mind. How could it not? That pizza was on a whole other level. But this experience was something new, one of our own creation. I felt like Trader Joe's and also Fleetwood Mac were reminding me that I could, in fact, go my own way. A few months later, on an uncharacteristically sunny and warm evening for April, my roommates and I joined our neighbors on their roof for pizza and much-needed socialization. Vaccines were on the way, and for the first time, it felt like the end of quarantine was in sight. There were eight of us on the roof, three boxes of delicious pizza from Whole Foods, where on Fridays, you can get a large cheese for just six bucks if you're an Amazon Prime member. Nothing novel, nothing fancy, but there was something special about having a pizza dinner together, and we stayed out on the roof chatting and exchanging neighborhood gossip till the sun went down. It felt good, surprisingly good, eating pizza with friends again. The world was returning to normal. A couple of weeks ago, I stepped into Vegan Pie, a neighborhood joint with big booths that feel like caves. They reminded me of Mykonos. I've never been there to Mykonos, but the booths were cave-like and white, so there was, I'd like to think, a likeness. I'd been in Seattle for almost a year, and this spot had become a frequent spot for personal celebrations. As the name suggests, the menu is completely vegan, so you can feel good about not killing the earth while you enjoy a slice. The man at the cashier wasn't wearing a mask, which was at first alarming, then comforting, and I ordered myself a Coke, no diet today, and a slice of the buffalo, emphasis on faux, chicken pizza. It was the first time I ate inside a restaurant since the beginning of the pandemic, and it felt a little strange. This slice of pizza was a celebration, both of the year, as well as the first draft of a very messy, and potentially at times, incoherent novel. The cheese was not as greasy as I wanted it to be, probably because it was made of cashews, and the slice seemed to conduct less heat. It was getting cold fast. During the course of the last year, I'd felt random pangs of frustration, anger, and sadness. They came and went as they pleased and often didn't give any reason for their arrival. So when I found myself smiling at the slice in front of me without knowing why, I just let it be. Josh Sullivan reading Luke Brennan's Pizza Odyssey. You can find that story on our website, dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson over a decade ago, The Marketplace Restaurant is back open and serving their signature fresh foods farmed by our neighbors. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer. For more information on our underwriters or how to find out how you can support us through our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. You won't find it by yourself You're gonna need some help And you won't fail with me around Come on, let's go I will tell you if you change And who's been saying things it's hard to tell
with family can be tough. As we age, our relationships with our parents tend to evolve just as much as we do, sometimes ebbing into points of connection or drifting further apart. And sometimes, no matter how hard you try, it just isn't possible to fix those relationships. Sometimes, you just have to take them as they come. For New Jersey writer Sumitra Matai, she's found that the bulk of her relationship with her father now revolves around three things. Her kids, tea, and sweet pastries. Here's Catherine reading her story, Chai and Apple Flips. Ever since the birth of my first child six years ago, my father arrives at my home in New York City once a month, holding a box of apple flips, half-moon pastries he orders by the dozen. He arrives early, before 10 a.m. on a Saturday, bearing a white cardboard box with the Manville Pastry Shop's logo stamped in faded blue ink. I've never been to this bakery, but I can tell these mini pies are made by hand from the lumpy, finger-crimped edges, sticky with caramelized sugar. After we've walked in the park or visited a museum, my father, my husband Alex, our baby Zadie, and son Miles all gather at the kitchen table for the final act of our monthly ritual. I warm the apple flips on a sheet pan in the oven, then I prepare masala chai. While Alex and my dad debate loudly over Zadie's babble and Miles' constant interjections, I crush cinnamon sticks, cloves, and cardamom pods with a mortar and pestle. I pour this aromatic dust along with a pale yellow heap of grated ginger root into a pot of water. When the water comes to a boil, I add teaspoons of loose black tea, then whole milk, then sugar. By the time the chai has fully steeped, the apple flips are heated through, the fruit tender, the pastry golden. I strain the chai into shallow bowl-shaped cups and place the pastries on patterned ceramics that glint in the afternoon light. For a few minutes, the table is hushed as we sip and eat. My father feeds Zadie tiny pieces, crumbs sticking to her cheeks. Mmm, she sings in approval, her chubby hands flapping, fingers splayed. Miles, too energetic to sit for long, jumps off his chair to perform his latest joke. Nana, he asks my father, his whole body wiggling in anticipation. What do twins eat? He smiles and sips his chai. I don't know, Miles. Pears, get it? Pears. My dad laughs hard, slapping the table as Miles beams. That's a good one. Pears. Alex and I have heard the joke at least a dozen times, but soon we are all laughing. The scene is a picture of familial bliss, as sweet as our tea and pastry. But if you had told me a decade ago that I would be hosting tea parties like this, I wouldn't have believed you. Not only was I adamantly against marriage and kids at the time, I was also not on speaking terms with my father. The very idea that I would create a family, let alone one that he would become a part of, seemed as impossible as forgiveness itself. But what I could not have anticipated was how it would feel to see my father, not as the man I feared and for many years hated, but as Nana, an old man with a low belly and tufts of white hair sprouting from his long ears, an adoring grandfather ready to laugh at a corny joke. Under the spell of our afternoon tea, I feel the afterglow of my father's affection for my children, like the indirect sunlight that keeps some plants alive. Our love for Miles and Zadie, these curly-haired, brown-skinned wonders, is probably the only thing we've ever truly shared. I stopped speaking to my dad on Father's Day of 2008, when I was 27 years old. My father, my younger sister, my older sister, her husband, their two young boys and I were having lunch at a big round table at the Macaroni Grill, a chain restaurant serving oversized plates of pasta that managed to be both salty and bland. 
As always, my dad spent most of the meal talking to my brother-in-law, barely making eye contact with me and my sisters. As I picked up my plate of mushroom ravioli, each one the size of a playing card, I listened aghast as he complained about his young female colleagues in the lab where he worked. You hire them to do a job, then the next thing you know, they're on maternity leave, he said exasperated. This from a father of three women. When I gave him his gift, a book about Darwin I hoped would appeal to his interests as a scientist, he dismissed it immediately. I have too much to read, he said, handing it back to me. It was not the first time he'd rejected my gifts. When I was a kid, he returned the sweater I'd gotten him, claiming he didn't wear sweaters. Before that, he gave away my gift of a houseplant, not wanting to take care of a living thing. This lunch was no different than dozens of other meals we'd shared in past years, obligatory celebrations that left me feeling small and stupid. I walked back to the car that day, heavy with the weight of my doggy bag of ravioli and the book I now had to return. I knew it would take a few days for the sour cocktail of emotions to leave my system, a lingering hangover I experienced every time. In the macaroni grill parking lot, I decided I'd had enough. My parents got divorced when I was 12, and my relationship with my dad had been strained long before that. We couldn't talk about the past and his abusive behavior any more than we could talk about my life. He was openly disdainful of my decision to attend art school and expressed zero interest in my career as a textile designer. I was sick of his casual misogyny and consistent disregard. No matter my age, in his presence, I felt like a child all over again, invisible and unworthy. For the next six years, I didn't call him. True to his proud nature, he never reached out to me. My sisters filled me in on their interactions with him, but they respected my boundaries. We had each spent some years out of contact with our dad. It was almost a rite of passage as a Matai. My father himself spoke to just one or two of his eight siblings. Over the years, he had written them off one by one for some petty feud or another. It was easier to shut him out than figure out how to deal with him, but I could never completely escape. I started therapy after I realized that my issues with my father were manifesting in my relationship with Alex. My therapist, Dr. Green, was a gray-haired gay man with thick, expressive eyebrows and a penchant for novelty socks. In his small office in Chelsea, with his blue carpet and cross-stitched throw pillows, he listened to me for a few sessions. One day, he said, Your father is dead, and you need to grieve him. This sweeping assertion, delivered in his gentle cadence, changed my trajectory. With Dr. Green's help, I found ways to face and console the most vulnerable parts of myself. I hadn't realized how much false hope I had been harboring, hope that my dad would change, hope that he would one day apologize for his wrongs. Weeks, months, and years later, I can acknowledge that my father would never be the father I deserved. By the time I reached out to my dad, I was in a different mental space. Alex and I were engaged, and I finally felt like my father couldn't hurt me anymore. When the two men met, they immediately connected. Just as my dad chatted easily with my brother-in-law, they spoke for hours about sports, politics, and current events. I chimed in when I could, and Alex tried to make space for me in the conversation. But nothing had really changed. No amount of therapy could make my father want to know me. For a long time, I felt like a third wheel when we met for dinner, eating in silence as the two men bonded. I was happy they were close, but it was also painful to watch their relationship unfold. 
What a great guy, Alex sighed one night as we got into our car and drove back to the city. I gulped back tears as we barreled along the New Jersey turnpike, shutting my eyes against the white blur of passing headlights. Yeah, really great. Why didn't the crab share with his brother, Miles asks, hopping from foot to foot, too excited to wait for a response. Because he's shellfish. Get it? Shellfish? Another round of giddy laughter. As I load the dishwasher, my dad sits on the floor and reads the very hungry caterpillar to Miles and Zadie, who tries to pull his reading glasses off the edge of his nose. I wish I could remember moments like this from my own childhood. The feeling of my father holding me or tousling my hair. But those sensations are lost, buried deep in my subconscious. When it's time to go, he asks Zadie for a kiss, and she tilts her face up, placing her small lips on his cheek. Miles doesn't want him to leave, but my dad has a long way home, an hour and a half by car. They're growing well, he says with a smile as he pulls on his coat. He claps me on the back in a loose approximation of a hug and shakes Alex's hand. He opens the gate and waves goodbye on the sidewalk one last time. Zadie squirms in Alex's arms, trying to get down. Miles is on the stoop in his socks. Goodbye, Nana. I watch my dad walk up the sidewalk toward Broadway, out of our lives until next month. Another Saturday, another box of apple flips, another pot of chai.
So, have you ever been food shamed? Um, in middle school, I was made fun of for bringing all organic, like blue tortilla chips and apples and all of these fresh organic foods in my lunchbox when all of the bright, shiny, popular people around me had little Debbie cakes in the latest Doritos flavor and, you know, Capri Sun juice boxes and all of those things. And I wanted so badly to have what, you know, to have what they had. But as I grew older, I realized that what I had when I was younger was a good thing. And I like returned back to that sort of crunchy granola part of myself and making things from scratch and growing foods in my garden and, um, you know, doing slow cooking. So what about you? Yeah, I don't, I don't have very many memories of like scarring food shaming. I think the closest thing I can come to is like when I first started writing about food for a living and was like writing for Mountain Express about food. I was in the grocery store one day and this guy just walks, this complete stranger walks up to me and just, I hear his camera go off on his phone and he's holding it directly over my basket. What? And he's just taking a picture of all of the contents of my basket. And I was like, what, what was that? And he's like, oh, I just wanted to see what the local food writer buys at the grocery store. Oh my goodness. And I was, it was the most creeped out I'd ever been. It was just like really, really weird. And I don't know. I think that since then there has been a weird sense of shame about certain things. Like for instance, I, it drives me, I find that sometimes I won't cook myself dinner if I know I have to chop garlic. I don't mind the onions. I don't mind anything else. It's just the garlic. Mm. So I started buying that jarred pre-cut garlic, Mm -hmm. which is... You know, not as flavorful. It's not as good. I admit that. But uh, it just makes it so that I always have garlic on hand so that if I don't feel like cutting garlic, I can just throw some of that in the pot and it's fine. It still gives me the flavor and it's not as good. It's fine. And uh, yeah, I just, I, it's funny because my cabinets fell a while back. They fell off the wall. We'd been telling my landlord that he needed to replace these cabinets for over a year and uh, they, one morning we just woke up to a crash and my roommate was like, well, it finally happened. And sure enough, there was this pile that was our entire pantry just on the floor. Mm-hmm. And now he replaced it with a shelf. He didn't even put cabinets back up there. He just put a shelf up there for us. So all of my pantry is like exposed to see. So you can literally see all of my shortcut ingredients. You can see the like pre-bagged um, cornbread mix that I sometimes use. You can see the like jars of, of garlic. You can see the, the packages of lemon juice that I sometimes grab if I'm out of actual lemons. And uh, I feel like it's, it's exposed me in some way to where like all of my little hacks and all of my little shortcuts are there for everyone that walks in my kitchen to see. And it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> We finally see the 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 magic behind the the trick, right? So yeah, it's it's the it's the 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 con that I am the the wizard behind the curtain, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So after a food shaming tweet went viral last year, California author Ruth Kogan Goodwin put her foot down. Here's Gina Smith reading her story: "Don't be food shamed." Tonight, I made a hearty, comforting chicken soup. I mixed pre-cut vegetables box chicken broth, 
dried ground seasonings, packaged pasta, and deboned chicken pieces in my Instant Pot, sealed the lid, and pressed start. Along with an easy-to-assemble bagged salad mix and some rolls, I fed my family dinner. Recently, a viral tweet disparaged these sorts of pre-prepared convenience ingredients, specifically bottled lemon juice, generic table salt, craft Parmesan cheese, and jarred minced garlic. Apparently, these are the hallmarks of a poor cook. Thousands of people liked the tweet, including popular Twitter personality, cookbook author, and cookware purveyor Chrissy Teigen, who felt it wise to retweet her agreement to her millions of followers. Though I do not typically care what people on Twitter think of my cooking skills, I'll admit that when I saw the post and retweet, my heart dropped. I have long used these types of convenience ingredients when I cook due to a disability that makes it difficult to stand for extended periods of time. Such products allow me to save prep time so I can assemble full recipes. I used to be embarrassed by the shortcuts I had to take. However, the robust counter-response to the viral tweet showed me that I am far from the only one to rely on convenient ingredients, and it is nothing to be ashamed of. Convenience food, defined as food that is processed so it can be prepared quickly for easy consumption, is not new. In fact, it's as old as, well, food itself. Nearly two million years ago, when humans first butchered animals and cooked meat over an open flame, they created sustenance that was better preserved and easier to digest than raw meat. This could arguably be seen as a step toward convenience food. There's also evidence that prior to the advent of agriculture, around 12,000 years ago, early Europeans were already baking bread using starches from the roots of cattails and ferns. As early as 30,000 years ago, humans pounded these roots into flour, mixed this powder with water, and baked it into loaves of bread. These loaves were portable, nutrient-dense, and resistant to spoilage, all of which are the desirable characteristics of many convenience foods today. When industrial technology entered the picture in the early 19th century, convenience food, first in the form of meat packing and later as canned goods, became more popular than ever. One of the earliest manufacturers still in operation, Van Camp, supplied canned beans to the Union Army in the 1860s. Returning veterans brought back a taste for and an appreciation of the convenience of canned foods. Post-World War II, the United States continued to enjoy an abundant and widely affordable food supply due to new technologies. Food manufacturers centralized and automated production, transforming raw ingredients into high volumes of processed foods quickly and with fewer workers. Beyond this, expansions such as separate freezers and larger refrigerators allowed the American housewife to not only use shelf-stable and canned goods, but increase the amount of perishable convenience foods and frozen dinners she had on hand. In 1959, engineer and inventor Joseph T. Listener was one of the first to recognize the demand for bagged, ready-to-eat vegetables, designing and building a one-of-a-kind machine that sliced raw carrots into sticks. By the end of the 1900s, Ready-to-eat convenience foods had become a significant part of the Western diet. Most Americans came to depend on the ability to buy such food whenever and wherever they wanted. Though the 2010s brought an increased preference for fresh, whole, and health-conscious food, causing a drop in demand for convenience foods, creative companies began to offer meal kit services like Blue Apron, Freshly, and Hungry Root, 
which delivered fresh ingredients and grocery items, along with recipe cards, to subscribers' homes. Consumers praised these kits as convenient and lauded them for bringing new cooking techniques, ingredients, and flavors into their homes. A 2016 study found that nearly 60% of the calories consumed in the modern American diet came from processed foods. All of this is to say that humans have been producing and relying on convenience foods for thousands, if not millions, of years. With such a broad definition, many foods fit this category. Ready-to-eat dry products, frozen foods, shelf-stable foods, prepared mixes, meal kits, and snack foods. Bread, cheese, salted food, and canned food can be considered convenience foods. Under these parameters, pretty much everyone in industrialized nations use some type of convenience food as a staple in their diets. It's just that some rely on it more heavily than others. It is true that modern convenience foods are not without downsides. Increased processing and packaging mean that they are not particularly environmentally friendly, though this is more of a problem with the entire industrialized food distribution system rather than these items in particular. Some argue that convenience foods are not as healthy as meals prepared from their whole counterparts due to nutrient degradation and chemicals used in processing. However, they can be healthier than other available options, especially for those who cannot cook for themselves. Others warn that there is a chance that convenience foods can become contaminated during processing, putting the consumer at risk of foodborne illness. So can any food, really. Another issue is that convenience foods, especially pre-prepared produce, can have a shorter shelf life than the unprocessed version. All of these are valid concerns in some situations. However, the biggest downside by far is that processed convenience foods are often more expensive than the unprocessed whole ingredient and cooking from scratch using those ingredients. This is especially true for fresh, pre-cut fruits and vegetables, which sometimes sell for more than three times the cost of their whole ingredient counterparts. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, in the United States, food is the third largest living expense for the average family. It would make sense to cut down on this significant expense, and a recent story found that the average person could save hundreds of dollars a month by cooking at home, and up to $100 per month by simply taking the time to chop food yourself. But it's not always as simple as that. Some people, like me, have difficulty staying upright to chop food. Others, for example, those with chronic pain or osteoarthritis, may have trouble using a knife. Some people may not have the time due to work or school schedules to chop their own food. Whatever the reason, it is not always laziness that drives the decision to purchase pre-prepared ingredients, and sometimes the additional cost or risk is well worth it. If it's between using a convenience ingredient and not cooking at all, the convenience ingredient wins. But I want to take this a step further. Using convenience foods is not only better than nothing, Taking advantage of easier-to-prepare or pre-prepared foods can have benefits not just for me or for those who struggle with stamina or mobility, but for everyone. Saving time in the kitchen allows for extra resources to be spent elsewhere, whether that's interacting with friends and family or even just relaxing with a beloved hobby. In this way, using convenience foods can help reduce stress levels and allow people to balance their lives so they don't have to spend more time in the kitchen than they wish. Convenience foods can also be a way for less experienced cooks to get into the kitchen. Not having to prepare a complicated or unfamiliar ingredient may reduce the intimidation that keeps beginning cooks from trying new techniques and recipes. The point is not whether convenience foods are good or bad, healthy or unhealthy. The real issue is making a moral judgment about foods. 
and by extension, those who consume them. Do I make chicken soup the same way my great-grandmother did, hand-forming matzo balls from chicken schmaltz and matzo meal? Which, by the way, is a convenience food. No. Would mine have tasted better or been healthier or less expensive had I made it from scratch, using unprocessed whole ingredients? Perhaps. But in the end, it doesn't really matter. I wouldn't have been able to cook it any other way. Gina Smith reading Ruth Kogan Goodwin's Don't Be Food Shamed. You can find that story on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. So 
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson over a decade ago, The Marketplace Restaurant is back open and serving their signature fresh foods, farmed by our neighbors. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer. For more information on our underwriters or to find out how you can support us through our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. Could it be different? Did it ruin the day? Or do you look angry? Oh, what did I say? Filling in the gaps, build a probe in that neither of us need something wrong with me. I'm getting desperate, losing my mind. Oh, how do we get here every time? One more fold the arms, one more do the dance. Really, is no need something wrong with me. No, I don't think I can help. <laughs> oh, so logical, I'm not magical. I can't read your mind. But how can you not hear the whole conversation? I'm still with the brain on fire. I know. It's a meeting, eyes closed isn't helping you go quiet, I hate myself When you go quiet, I hate myself Look at you sideways, playing a game Oh, what if I laugh now, think I'm insane Filling in the gaps, build a problem that neither of us needs something wrong with me Something to prove Strong expectation You already lose Oh, I'm all for the room will do the dance Really is don't need something wrong with me No, I don't think I can help it Oh, so illogical I'm not magical I can't be But how can you not hear the whole conversation I have since the world of brain on fire I love it's amazing Eyes closed isn't helping When you go quiet, I hate myself When you go quiet, I hate myself Dirty Spoon is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2021. All of the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that website is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Doza, Ashley Icomedes, Kali Minear, Garnett Fisher, Paul Choi, Marianne Papineau, and Alex Knighton. Music in this episode by Mauve and Pix, Broadcast, Celeste, Nicole Atkins, Damaged Bug, Dodie, Pip Blom, Jersey Doodoo Matusiewicz, Errol Garner, Marco Beltrami and Miles Hawkins, Adley Orvarsson, Federico Albanese, Ben Lovett, Ramsey Lewis, Charles Rumbach, and Riley Walker. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM.